In Puerto Rico, they call themselves Boricua. But Boricua is more than a name for a person from Puerto Rico. It's a way of life that means embracing the beauty that surrounds you, seeking adventure no matter where it may lead, and sharing that vibrant spirit with everyone you meet. And you can experience all that warm, welcoming, passionate culture set in a tropical island paradise without the need for a passport for U.S. citizens or permanent residents. Learn more about how you can live Barigua at discoverpuertorico.com. In Puerto Rico, they call themselves Barigua. But Barigua is more than just a word to identify a person from Puerto Rico. It's a way of life that means embracing the beauty that surrounds you, seeking adventure, and sharing that vibrant spirit with everyone you meet. In Puerto Rico, you can experience a tropical paradise with world-class beaches. You can immerse yourself in the rich 500-year history of Old San Juan, where there are stunning forts, classic town plazas, and iconic monuments. You can indulge in a foodie paradise with renowned restaurants, seaside kiosks, and an innovative cocktail scene. And you can take in an abundance of natural wonders like El Yunque, the only tropical rainforest in the U.S. national forest system, all without the need for a passport for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. Learn more about the warm culture of Puerto Rico and how you can live Boricua at discoverpuertorico.com. Hey everyone, and welcome to Travel Tales, a podcast from Afar Media. I'm your host, Senior Editor Aislinn Green, and for the past six years, I've had the pleasure of working with some of the most creative and interesting people in the world. Comedians, philosophers, novelists, they've all shared their stories with Afar's readers about getting out into the world and just reveling in it. And now, each week on Travel Tales, we'll hear from some of our favorite contributors about a trip that changed their life. In this episode, we'll meet Peter Bowler. Peter is a photographer and a frequent contributor to Afar. A couple of years ago, he and his wife Celia took a trip to Morocco. They wanted to see the real Morocco, so they decided to go by bike. Sounds super noble, right? And it was. It was also insanely hard. I mean, they biked through deserts and up mountain passes, and they spent so much time in the saddle, it was actually hard to see Morocco. They weren't quite sure what to do. And then they met a fellow cyclist named Helmut, who ironically biked without a helmet. And suddenly their path became a little more clear. It was our second day of cycling in Morocco, and we were going to cross the Atlas Mountains. Ahead of us, a ribbon of highway seemed to switch back interminably, gleaming in the sun, and we felt every missed training ride. My fiance Celia and I crept uphill at five miles an hour, one pedal stroke at a time, one foot in front of the other. It took us all day. But as we got higher, we passed these salesmen selling geodes to tourists on the side of the road, and they saw us and they yelled, Bravo! Bravo! The sun sank. The light got more beautiful. And right before sunset, we made it to the top of the 7,000-foot pass. We felt so accomplished. We were going to see Morocco, and we were going to do it by bike. 
Before I go on, you should know that I'm a professional photographer, and I travel a lot. But one of the things that's funny about travel photography is that it's like drinking from a fire hose. I go on these incredible two-week trips, except I do them in five days with a huge shot list and a tightly packed itinerary. I work with guides and drivers, and I rush around photographing all these different locations and all these different subjects, trying to be there at the exact right time. I see incredible places, but too often I go there very quickly, and I see them out of context, without a good idea for what it would be like to travel there on my own. And nearly always, I leave Celia behind. So we wanted to have an adventure together. We wanted to immerse ourselves in a place, so we carved out a whole month and decided to travel without an itinerary. We wanted to break free of the bubble provided by guides and cars and find our own way under our own power. And so we chose bikes, thinking that by being on bikes, we would see every inch of our route and we would know Morocco intimately. Maybe we'd even understand it. And so we had gotten to the top of the pass. We were filled with relief, but there was very little time to celebrate because the sun was setting and we still had 20 kilometers to go before the next town. We cast off down an epic descent on a red clay dirt road as the light turned from gold to orange to purple to blue. It was dark by the time we got to that town and we found our way to a guest house by headlamp. The next day of cycling brought us through a beautiful winding valley and finally to the Kasbah of Ait Ben Hadou, a gorgeous 400-year-old earthen castle that's famous as a film location with a tourist town sprung up around it. We wanted to see the Kasbah, but by the time we arrived, the sun was again hanging low in the sky. And this brought us to one of the inobvious challenges of bike trekking. The business of being a tourist is directly at odds with cycling. If you want to cover any distance, you need to spend your time on the bike. But if you're spending all your time on the bike, you have no time to see all of the things. As we sat in the center of town, too exhausted to make a decision about whether to press on, we decided that maybe we needed a rest day anyway. As we made our way to the tent campground in town, we found it already occupied by an Austrian cyclist named Helmut, who was spending the day relaxing in his hammock. We soon learned that Helmut had spent the better part of the last 15 years cycling all over the world. He was this finely tuned creature of the road, crossing continents with neither helmet nor sunscreen. His stories blew us away. Like us, he'd gotten to the top of the Atlas Mountains, but instead of coasting downhill with relief, he found a dirt path higher up into the mountains and made it to the snow line. And he had just come from the Sahara, but instead of parking his bike and hiring a land cruiser to take him out there, he had actually pulled his bike through the sand for five days, finding drinking water in wells along the way and camping under the stars amid the giant dunes. Whereas we had expensively rented bikes in Marrakesh, he had bought the cheapest mountain bike he could find in Portugal and somehow already had a buyer lined up for after the trip. And while we'd often burn an hour waiting for a tagine in a restaurant, he subsisted on gluten-free pasta that he cooked on a backpacking stove. He just had it dialed. And I know this might sound miserable to you, but it sounded amazing to us. I think that tells you something about the mindset of people who want to bike across a country in the first place. To us, Helmut epitomized this ideal of traveling outside of the normal tourist infrastructure. Wandering free on his bike, he had adventures we had never even imagined. He'd seen these magical places, but instead of being transported to them for a quick photo op, he'd worked for it, 
and in the process, seeing how these places are connected to the rest of the country. Traveling like this was hard, but we were willing to suffer for experiences like these. Talking to Helmut crystallized our goals. We were going to see everything the hard way. Two days later, we set off south toward the dunes, but we were still struggling. It seemed like a different part of my bike broke every day. We were led astray by some enterprising locals, and by the time we got close to the dunes, we decided that maybe we needed a land cruiser to take us out there after all. And back on our bikes, when we did find our way off the main road and onto the old caravan path, this ancient rocky dirt road through beautiful palm groves and old casbahs, we felt so pressed for time that we rushed through this section, barely stopping. It was a kind of gluttony, a gluttony for experiences. We wanted to see the entire country, the wind-blown dunes of the Sahara, the rocky coast, the camels, the intricate tile work. We had been seduced by the iconic images of Morocco you see on Instagram and in glossy travel magazines, magazines like Afar. But instead, we'd entered a world of endless bike repairs and constant, grueling uphills. We moved slowly. The dramatic landscape that we had come to see started to feel like an obstacle. And we kept wondering, are we having fun? Are we having a more authentic experience? After days of cycling, we would arrive at some destination that we had fished out of the guidebook to find it already beset by busloads of selfie-stick-waving tourists. As I shuffled past, in dirty bike clothes and clutching my camera, I wondered if I was any different than them. Maybe I just smelled worse. Things came to a head about two weeks into the trip. We had decided we weren't moving fast enough to see everything we wanted, so we'd taken an overnight bus out of the desert to the western part of the country. We had our sights set on Tafra'ut, a mountain village famous for its photogenic blue-painted rocks. The bus disgorged us at four in the morning in the center of an unfamiliar town, 90 miles from Tafra'ut, and with nothing else to do, we started biking in the dark. Soon, Celia started to feel queasy, and before long, she was alternating ibuprofen with trips into the bushes. Meanwhile, the road got steeper and steeper, and after a closer look at the map, we realized with alarm that these mountains were nearly as big as the ones we'd climbed in the atlas. After two hard days of slogging uphill, we arrived at Kasbah Tizergane, a beautiful stone Kasbah that had been converted into a very nice hotel. That afternoon, as we drank mint tea on the terrace, we spread out the map and looked at how far Tafarut still was ahead of us. We added up our rapidly dwindling time and how many miles we could cover in a day. We realized that if we kept going this direction, this might be our last stop in Morocco. We still had so much we wanted to see, and these mountains were so steep. We felt those beautiful blue rocks drifting away from us. And we thought back on something Helmut had said. A month is nothing. After one month, you barely feel like you're in a place. We wondered what he would do. Would he force himself to press on? I realized that though I didn't have a shot list for this trip, the images and ideas of Morocco I had floating around in my head were just as rigid. We had given up the speed of the car and the bubble of the tourist infrastructure, but not that mindset. 
we were still in a greedy rush to see it all. But biking is a holistically different way of traveling. We just weren't going to be able to see all the things that someone in a car could. We had to let that go. So we turned around and headed downhill. We let those painted rocks go. We let go of the vast market of Fez and the Roman ruins and the blue walls of Chefchouin. We let go of the sleepy towns on the southern coast and the saffron fields of Talloween. We decided on one last stretch of cycling, three or four days up the coast. We would end in Essaouira, a beach city known for its seaside walls, its old town, its fishing boats. But this time, the destination wouldn't be the point. On this stretch, we were just going to focus on cycling, on finding our rhythm. At the end of our first day of riding up the coast, we found a beautiful place to camp on a bluff above the ocean, surrounded by juniper trees. As soon as we had the tent set up, it started pouring rain, so we leapt inside and ate our dinner on our camping pads. A simple picnic of olives, bread, dried apricots, and canned mackerel, which we had become obsessed with for some reason. We were giddy as we listened to the crashing of the surf and the rain drumming down on the roof of the tent. The next morning dawned clear, with a beautiful sunrise. As we packed up our camp, we pulled out a small bag of gravel that a Moroccan had given us while trying to rope us into a mineral exportation scheme. One by one, we threw these rocks into the ocean, trying to let go of all these expectations we had for the trip, and for ourselves. As Celia grabbed the last one, she looked down at it and said, This one is for you, Morocco. I don't understand you, but why would I? As we left camp, Celia realized she had a flat tire, and a few minutes later it started raining again. That day was super hard. We had five flats and a stiff headwind, but we had stopped worrying about all the things we weren't seeing. We were sad when we had to bike uphill. We were happy when we were biking downhill. We would take shelter from the rain, and we would be tired at the end of the day. And day by day, a bit of magic started to emerge. We were finally present enough to see what was around us. Still, it was with a certain humility that we saddled our bikes for our last day of riding. Just a short while later, we saw this familiar silhouette on the horizon. As we got closer, we realized it was Helmut. After our weeks on the road, it really hit me just how good he was at bikepacking. There were so many things I wanted to ask him. I wondered how his adventures had been and how much ground he had covered since we'd last seen him. As we got off our bikes, I asked him what he had been doing. Smiling, he said, Oh, not much. I took the bus to Essaouira. It's a very nice town. I was too lazy. I ate a lot. I was flabbergasted. Helmut took the bus? His enthusiasm grew as he went on. I stayed in a great hostel with a kitchen. There was a group of Japanese tourists there. They invited me to cook with them. We made tuna sashimi. And I realized Helmut wasn't trying to be some kind of superhuman adventurer. He wasn't seeking out the hard way at all. He just took so much joy in the discovery. And by following that joy, he was truly present in these moments. As he got on his bike and headed off toward the beach, I saw what it meant to really experience a place. It had nothing to do with how many miles you covered in a day. 
That was Peter Bowler. Since Morocco, he and Celia have gotten married and started a new journey as parents. Their son Forrest is now nine months old. You can check out Peter's photos on his website, peterbowler.com, and on Instagram, at peterbowler, where yes, there are adorable baby pics. And you'll find links to both in our show notes. Peter says he's been cycling a lot during shelter in place, though his trips are much shorter now that he's taking care of a baby. I'm getting to know the hill behind our house very well, he said with a wink. Ready for more travel stories? Visit us online at afar.com slash travel tales. And be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We're at Afar Media. If you enjoyed today's adventure, we hope you'll come back next week for more great stories. Subscribing makes this easy. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. And please be sure to rate and review us. It helps other travelers find the show. This has been Travel Tales, a production of Afar Media and Boom Integrated. Our podcast was produced by Aislinn Green, Adrian Glover, and Robin Lai. Post-production was by John Marshall Media staff Jen Grossman and Clint Rhodes. Music composition by Alan Koresha. And a special thanks to Laura Redmond, Sarah Storm, and Irene Wang. I'm Aislinn Green, your zoomed-out, under-traveled host. I can't wait to hit the road again. Until we all freely can, remember that travel begins the moment we walk out our front door. Everyone has a travel tale. What's yours? Thank you.